Welcome to Heaven Sent and Bent on TalkZone.com, a place to talk about the experiences that we call life. We'll share the sorrow and the joy that makes this earthy existence real and makes us who we are. Now, here's your host, Renee Steelman. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Oh, my goodness. It feels so good to be back. I've been off for a long time. I had a lot of things going on uh, with the family. I had um, a vacation that my family and I had planned for a long time. And then, unfortunately, I lost my father, um, which was somewhat expected, but uh, but yet not. Any of you that have gone through that with an elderly parent who has been diagnosed with an illness, you know the feeling of kind of expecting it. And yet when it actually happens, you're surprised, which seems, you know, kind of a a confusing thing. But my father was sick for a number of years, but he always rallied back. He was actually diagnosed with stage four lymphoma over 40 years ago. And at the time, he um, was only given six months to a year to live and he went through the uh, chemotherapy and did everything he was supposed to do and he beat it. He, he had a wonderful and very healthy and happy life and probably about 15 years ago, I would say, his cancer came back. But he did another round of chemotherapy and he went back into remission and that seemed to be his MO. He would get sick and then he would do treatments and he would get better. And, but unfortunately the, the cancer settled in his lungs and he developed COPD, which really was what took him down. The inability for your lungs to work properly was just so hard to watch him struggle and eventually that is I think what, uh, what took him, but, um, he was 89 years old and when he passed away, my brother and my mom and I were all there with him and it was an, uh, a very spiritual experience, needless to say, but, um, my family and I had a vacation planned and everything was purchased. Airline tickets were purchased. So right after dad passed away, the entire family went to Alani in Hawaii, which was wonderful and uh, a little bit cathartic. And it really emphasized what it means to be together as a family. And so it's been an interesting month, needless to say. But we're back. And it really, I think everything that I've gone through this last month has really emphasized what my radio show, what the, what the title of the radio show, Heaven Sent and Bent, is all about. Because it's all about life's journey and what we go through and the struggles and the trials and the things that we go through as humans living on this earth and how we get through that and whether the things that we go through, whether they strengthen our faith or whether they discourage us and turn us into bitter, uh, unhappy human beings. And our goal with this show is to give people strength and to give people hope. And um, I have a couple of guests today that I think exemplify this um, mantra. And my first guest is um, my 13-year-old grandson. And Caden, how are you today? Um, I'm good. Okay. Caden is a wonderful young man who happens to be working on his merit badges for for Boy Scouts. And one of the merit badges that he's working on is the communications merit badge. And one of the requirements is you have multiple choices. You can um, 
um, write to an editor of a magazine or a newspaper, or you can create a web page or a blog, um, or you can publish a newsletter or a brochure or a flyer or, you know, lots of other things. So we've decided that what could be better for a communications merit badge than to be on a radio talk show? And so... And he happened to know somebody who does that. So, Caden, we're going to talk a little bit today about some of the things that you're interested in and, and what you, you know, how much you're enjoying Boy Scouts. Tell us a little bit about, about why you really are enjoying Boy Scouts. Well, um, I like Boy Scouts a lot because it's really fun and you get to hang out with your scouts and you get to know how to survive in the wild. You know, if Tom Hanks from Castaway went to Boy Scouts, he would definitely survive on the island much longer. <laughs> but um so yeah, um it's really fun to like know how to do stuff like you get to learn how to like wood carve and you get to know you get to know how to make a fire without any matches, you get to know how to like make a fire like back in like the stone age, like how you just like rub two rocks together, but they have to be like they can't be smooth. They can't be smooth. They have to be like kind of jagged and stuff to get the fire going. Oh, interesting. And he and Caden actually just got back from a camp out. Uh he went on a camp out last weekend and here in the Pacific Northwest, uh getting a sunny weekend that happens to fall on the time that you had a camp out planned is very rare, but he did have some really great weather and what are some of the things you did on your last camp out? Uh, we took a hike. We went fishing, although we couldn't. We didn't catch any fish because the fish were in the non-fishing area. They've learned over the years, and um, yeah, they were just like teasing us. They were te- like they kept like jumping up, like, "Hey, hey you can't get us. You can't fish here." <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then you went on a hike, and and uh, yep, and you had to prepare a meal. Everyone had to fix their own dinner. Mm-hmm. I had and, chicken. And you had chicken. And uh for breakfast, everyone had to fix their own breakfast and and uh it's really a, a great experience. And I I know my one of my sons, you know, he uses a lot of the skills that he learned in Boy Scouts even today. He said, you know, he'll go places with, you know, other buddies and things like that. I mean, this is a thirty, thirty two year old man. And, you know, he, and these, some of these other guys are like, I don't know how to build a fire. I don't know how to, you know, use a compass and things like that. It, it's amazing. It's an amazing organization. And, and we're very grateful that Caden is having the opportunity to take part in it. So, Caden, tell us a little bit about, um, Caden has a lot of different interests. And one of the things that he really enjoys is for some reason, he has taken a liking to lighthouses. And tell us some of the things that you like about the lighthouses that we have visited here in the Pacific Northwest. Well, I like lighthouses because they look kind of cool. I like how they're used, but they're not really used much. Like like today, like in the time of year, well, I feel like, like right now, like, like sailors are using like, like, like they're using like trackers or something where the land is. They're not really using lighthouses anymore. But you know, it's still fun to be. You know, it's still fun to use lighthouses. You know, right? So they've got more modern technology now, but they still, 
but they're a beautiful landmark and, and I, and they do still partially use them. So, and we visited some beautiful lighthouses here in, in the Pacific Northwest, but okay. our goal is to get back east and visit some of those lighthouses. Yeah, yeah, we've gone to the, we've gone to the Hesteta Head lighthouse. We've been to the Yukuna Head, which is like by far the tallest lighthouse I've ever been to. And the Hesteta Head lighthouse is probably the tallest lighthouse I've been to. No, um, so yeah, we, so we set ahead, we went to the Uquina, which is like the tallest I've ever seen. We went to the North Head Lighthouse, and then we went to Cape, and then we went to the Cape Disappointment Lighthouse, which, which is the smallest one, not the Hasetta Head, sorry. Disappointment is like unbelievably short for a lighthouse. It's like, it's like, it's like 13 feet tall. Oh, that's interesting. Well, Caden. I'm going to cut you off here. Thank you so much for joining me today on the show. And um, Caden is uh, getting to enjoy spring break. This is his spring break from school. So uh, he got to sleep in this morning and, yeah, not have, doesn't have to go to school this week. So it's a great week, even though it's raining outside. But that's the Pacific Northwest. So thanks for joining us today, Caden. We'll see you later. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay. Anyway, what we have to do to help our help our kids – um, but it has been a fun experience. You know, one of the great things about having children is that they bring things into your life that you wouldn't normally. It might be something that they're interested in that you might not be interested in. And, you know, I, I didn't have a big fascination with lighthouses, but when Caden, you know, started really wanting to see and visit lighthouses, we said, let's do it. And, and it's been really, really fun, uh, a fun thing. That's the beautiful thing about what kids bring into a family. So anyway. Thank you all. Thank you all for joining me today. And I want to introduce my main guest today. Uh, Vanessa Truitt is someone that I met at the uh, Women's Festival Pacific Northwest. And it's a fairly new uh, festival that this was the first year that they had celebrated uh, here in the Pacific Northwest. It's held in other parts of the country. But organizers got together and decided that they wanted to see if they could have a women's festival in this area. So this was the first year. And Vanessa was one of the speakers that was invited to address the women that were in attendance. And I was so impressed with her and blown out of the water with her story. And I was really, really grateful that she agreed to be my guest so that she could tell you her story. And I want to just start out by just telling you a little bit about Vanessa. Um, she really has found her love. Her, her love of writing has been turned into a gift back to the community because she has turned this love of writing into uh, fundraising appeals for nonprofits and uh, focusing on social justice and gender-specific organizations. She's using her skills to research, network, and write grants and major and for for major don, donor cultiva, uh, cultiva, cultiv, cultivation hello and diversity and advocacy training and she has obtained over $250,000 in grants for local nonprofit agencies and her major donor record includes a $750,000 endowment for empowering people with 
and without disabilities in South America with dance. And over the last 20 years, she has worked in the nonprofit sector doing outreach, membership, single gender and social justice program development, mentoring and fundraising, as well as entrepreneurship. And for such a successful person, and it's hard for me to believe that she's been doing anything for 20 years because she looks like she's 20, so it's kind of hard to believe. But you would think that someone which who has such a successful career and, and who has donated so much of her life to helping nonprofits and and helping you know different organizations be successful, uh, you would think that they had maybe perhaps come from a really charmed life. But she really has struggled from the age of 16. Um, with things that she will tell you about and things that she kind of got herself into. But, you know, through her own mindset has been able to get herself out of, but has more importantly, not only gotten herself out of some really tough situations, but has use those experiences to give back to society. And that's why I'm so excited to have Vanessa tell you her story and to introduce her to you. So thanks for joining me this morning, Vanessa. Thanks, Renee. Can you hear me? I can. I can. Great. So, I was so thrilled to be invited uh, to talk on your show today. Thank you. Well, I am, I am so pleased to have you. And I think what I was touched most by when I met you was your humbleness and the fact that you have this inner drive to serve and to, to help organizations and, and to, to, you know, to help, uh, you know, for advocacy training for other people and, and for nonprofits and for so many different, um, fundraising and, and outreach programs. And yet, you don't want to be in the spotlight. You don't want to be out there in front. And it's really hard for you to stand up and be the voice. You want to, you kind of want to be the background person, but you've done so much. It's amazing. Thank you. Yes. Um, I'm sure you could have, you could tell from my speech that I was not necessarily 100% comfortable being up at the podium, but I was really moved. Uh, when I was asked to speak, and I felt like I had a story that had to get out of me. It was something, and I had to view it as something that might help someone else. Uh, Right, exactly. So so tell the listeners, just kind of start at the beginning. You had, um, I think, now correct me if I'm I'm wrong, but you, you had a fairly good childhood, um, you, you mentioned that your parents were academics and that you were an only child. So, um, you know, academia was very important in your home and you were encouraged to, to, to study and to learn and to go on to college. So tell us what kind of happened when you were about 16. Well, you hit the nail on the head. I really, I really was very blessed to be raised by people that were uh, excited to be parents and were very conscientious on having one child and making sure that uh, they were able to provide for that child. And I, I was raised very blessed that way. Um, but, you know, we can't always predict what will happen in our lives. And I ended up, now I understand, I didn't know and my parents didn't know what was happening to me, but 
now how I would describe it is around the age of 16, I had my first uh, major depressive episode. And so that really, that really sort of threw a wrench in plans or even being able to um, plan. It was, it was really a strange and frightening uh, experience to go through, especially not understanding what was happening. Wow. Do you think looking back, um, now that you've gained so much knowledge in that area, do you look back on that time and, and diagnose that depression as a chemical imbalance or more, more of a environmental situation? Or what do you think drove you to that, that time of depression? Well, you know, maybe if you would have asked me at that time, I, I, I don't know how I would have answered it at that time because most of my time was spent hiding it from other people because it was embarrassing and shameful and it was something that I didn't understand and I didn't want anyone to be disappointed in me. But, Mm. you know, now that I understand our family's history, um, depression definitely runs in our family. But, you know, we didn't, previous generations didn't talk about those things. They didn't really have an open dialogue about those things. And it wasn't until I had um, a son with autism that I really started learning the history of mental health and disabilities in this country. And I think for a lot of people in previous generations, they kind of just kept things hidden, you know, or up in the attic or um, other really disturbing uh, ways of covering up these things that were challenges for so many of us. Exactly. You're so right there. There, you know, you were, we're able to be more open nowadays and talk about, the, you know, mental illnesses of all kinds and recognizing that it's not a weakness and that we all, we all have some kind of dysfunction, no matter, I don't know what normal is, who knows what normal is. But like you say, there is a genetic factor. And, but when you came from, especially like in your case, um, if you were to say, you know, I'm really depressed, people, you know, in those days would go, really? What do you have to be depressed about? You have two parents that love you, blah, blah, blah. You know? Definitely. And pull yourself up by your bootstraps. (laughs) Right, exactly. So how did you handle that depression at the age of 16? Um, At the age of 16, I did it um, by, I started isolating myself. Um, I developed an eating disorder. I found that uh, with uh, anorexia, I was able able to sort of um, self-medicate that way. It was something that sort of quelled my anxiety and um and I'm sure there's a chemical component to sort of starvation that happens in your brain looking back now and you know I think at the time you know I mean some people noticed that I was losing weight but it was still one of those things that it really really wasn't being talked about and I was able to keep things you know a big part of my life was keeping things hidden because I didn't want to worry people and I didn't you know, I didn't understand what was happening. All I knew is that I was really different from other people, and I didn't want to be that way. And so I, I hid a lot. I, um, I think that's also when writing became very important to me because it was something I could do solitary and I could process my feelings. And yeah, <laughs> yeah. And you, you were able to get through high school, even though you know you kind of. Started a little bit of now when when you you mentioned in your bio that you started drinking a little bit in high school was that to socially 
fit in or was it to socially mask your depression or what do you think drove I think so I you know I mean now we know that alcohol is a depressant and it's probably the worst thing that you can do for someone with depression but I also had really disabling social anxiety and so it was something if I needed to be social um, I found that drinking really helped mask those feelings and it was you know it was self-medicating and you know, like we know now, adding alcohol to that that mix of depression and anxiety was probably the worst thing that I could have done. Isn't that true? I, I've heard that so often. People who are extremely shy or uncomfortable in a lot of big social situations, they do use that that little bit of euphoria that you can get some people can get from alcohol that helps them to feel like they're fitting in or that they can be the life mm-hmm. of the party. And um, especially at that age, especially when you're in high school and, and everybody wants to be the life of the party. It's, it's something that I definitely think needs to be talked more about of, you know, mm-hmm. not, it's not always, a lot of people will, will blame just that desire to fit in as the cause of the, of the drinking, but it's not so much. I want to be one of the cool kids it's more this innate feeling of I can't even be around kids yes. of my own <laughs> age if I'm not if I don't have some kind of a substance that lets me be a little more open and free. I don't even want to be in the same room, exactly. let alone be with the cool kids. Um, exactly, so. and it was it wasn't until um, I started learning more about autism and my son that. I started understanding when I started reading some of the stuff and I was thinking to myself, oh, my gosh, well, this is what I was going through. You know, it really sort of helped me understand things on a grander scale. Yeah, so true. And it is definitely my theory, and this is an unscientific, uh, undocumented theory, but I really do feel as though a lot of the autism and Asperger's that we're dealing with was something that has been – kind of a genetic thing, but something yes. in our environment is triggering it to be more than just social awkwardness and it's triggering it in, into a disability. And it's frightening to to have that feeling but yet not know what it is that's sure. turning a, you know, a shy, uh, maybe socially awkward person who functions quite you know, quite okay once they find their niche, you know, into a person who is dysfunctional and cannot, you know, function in a family or in society. And it's sad. It's just scary, I think, because it's the unknown. But you're so right. So you went, you were able to graduate from college or from high school and then go to college and, <laughs> and you played basketball, which is a very socially busy thing to get yourself into, um, and you traveled abroad, and what were your feelings? What was going on during that time? <laughs> um, I think it was really hard to uh, have future plans at that time. It was really just trying to get to the next, I, I think back, and it was really just trying to get to the next activity, and I realized there were so many years of my life that I was not able to be present in the moment. It was really just trying to get through until the next planned activity and make it through that. And, yeah, there was no long-range plans. Um, I was just sort of following what was or what I believed was expected from me. And it was 
it was beginning to get harder and harder to keep things together. Mm-hmm. And I, I like that you said that you were going from, you know, your your life consisted of going from what I have to do today to what is the next thing I have to do today. And that is as far as your planning could go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So talk a little bit about um, the sexual assault that happened and, and how that kind of just threw you over the edge. So luckily nowadays, um, sexual assault on college campuses is getting a lot of attention. You know, we're having, you know, we're having music, musicians, you know, performing on the Grammys about it. We're having national ad campaigns. Colleges are really stepping up and trying to put some things in place that, you know, make sure that people that have suffered sexual assault um, know how to get help. Um, and maybe even helping people understand what consent is. I think we're headed in the right direction, but certainly in 19, let's see, 1992, those things really weren't talked about. And it was really, um, again, again, a, a shameful thing to happen to you. And um, when it did happen to me, uh, you know, it wasn't a stranger in a dark alley that um attacked me. It wasn't this menacing man in a long trench coat that chased me. It was a friend of mine at a party on college campus. And um, so that happened towards the end of my sophomore year. And at that point, I really, I couldn't keep it together any longer. And I decided that I needed to come home. I, I didn't tell my parents. I didn't tell anyone actually for several years. Um, about what happened, and I, I, I think I told my parents that I wanted to finish going to college back home in Oregon. I'd been in school in Illinois. So, um, yeah, so as far as they knew, I just I wanted to finish schooling um, back in the area that I grew up. You know, they know that they knew that I was going through things, but I'm sure, I'm sure it was just, you know, well, this is what happens with teenagers or young adults. Right, right, mm-hmm. right. She's homesick. She just wants to come back home. And and uh, and they were okay with that at first. They were like, okay, as long as you're in college, you, you know, just continue your education back here. They were okay with that? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I mean, certainly they probably weren't pleased that plans had changed or anything like that. But I, I think they had... You know, I'm pretty sure they had an inkling that uh, I wouldn't have pushed, you know, pushed so hard for something if it wasn't something that I needed. Uh, right, right. Mm-hmm. But then you eventually dropped out of college, and that must have been like a, a little bit of a, okay, <laughs> you can move back home, but now you've dropped out totally. That couldn't have been okay. No, I I think I ended up having several terms that I would, you know, not finish certain classes. Um, It would get to the point where I would even, I'd walk down to campus and I'd have such high levels of anxiety of being with people that I would just come home or I'd hide in the coffee shop. I would, um, my anxiety became so disabling that I just, I couldn't function. Um, And I think by that time, I probably, I'm thinking that I, at that point I had started smoking pot and drinking even more 
um, to sort of self-medicate these these feelings. And at that point, it wasn't even to fit in. It was just to make it through the day. So, yeah, those things, you know, when it gets to the point where you're not even able, you know, you're doing these things just to get through until you can fall asleep at night, then, yeah, certainly the... Yeah, I was I was in trouble. <laughs> by right, exactly. And and so, how did you become homeless after during this time? Did you just do that? Did you remove yourself from your ability oh, yeah. to stay at home? Okay, so it was kind of like I don't want to have to face my family, so I will live on the streets. Well, what actually happened is I so I had several, you know. I had several terms where I didn't complete a bunch of classes and I tried again. And <laughs> Here's the strange thing. I decided, okay, I'm going back. To, I actually went back to the college that I had started at. I was like, I'm going to finish there. I only have a couple, I only have a year left to go. And I tried that and I wasn't even able to um, attend courses then. And that's when um, I took off. So I wasn't at home at that point. Um, okay, so that gave you the freedom point, because I, you were back in Illinois and away from family and and uh, yeah. you could, okay. And at that point, I had graduated to even harder drugs and I had started experimenting with methamphetamine. Oh. So, I mean, 22 years ago, we didn't know much about it, but um, it had been introduced to me as actually a study aid in college. Um it was a study aid and, oh, you can lose weight too, uh, mm-hmm. type of thing. And so it seemed like sort of a miracle drug. And it wasn't something that we associated with people on the streets, you know, that didn't have that, you know, that public image that we know now of what it was. You know, it was, it was football players using it to, you know, power through a game or, you know, kids study, you know, so that's how I got introduced to it. And as we know now, it's, quickly takes you down a really dangerous and ugly road and you end up places that you never thought you would be. So that's yeah. how that part of my life started. That's so interesting because I've heard that, you know, so often. Um, my, I have, a, I have a, um, a friend who is a nurse and she talks about her fellow nurses who are, you know, using amphetamines, oh. Ritalin, Adderall, different things like that. To be able to continue on with life plus work the double shifts that they have to work. And it's amazing how these drugs are introduced as the cure-all. Oh, this will just, you know, you'll, you'll be able to stay up all night and study and you'll be able to work two shifts and still take care of your family. And there's no side effects whatsoever. It's a miracle. It's great. And, and, and so really good people get involved in these things and, and, uh, wow, it's just amazing. So then how did, what happened there? I mean, how did your life change when that, that, that entered your so life? Quickly, quickly that turned into, um, hanging, uh, you know, I became affiliated with a gang and I started hanging around with people and doing criminal activities, uh, because for them it was a lifestyle and, I, you know, I still want, this is going to sound weird, but there was still part of me that wanted to fit in. I wanted to be accepted by people. I want, but I also found that this group of people, there were no expectations. I could be as mentally unstable as I wanted to be, and it didn't matter. So 
for whatever reason, and as horrific as some of the things that I went through happened, I still, um, you know, I, I, I don't want to say that any of it was a mistake because it was meeting a need that I needed at that point, and um, I sure learned a lot from it all. Right, right. I think that's an interesting point that you make, that the need to fit in, no matter what tribe you happen to be associating with at this time you're you're with a gang and 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 that you say these people don't have any expectations but yet you felt as though these were things that you had to do to even fit in there so when you're in this environment you have to be the studious young uh bright person and then in this environment you have to be the drug uh, go along with anything person and, right. and, 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 and this need to belong to a tribe is so strong that, um, it doesn't matter. You know, we will do anything as a human to fit in somewhere. And I think that's so, the people need to understand that more that when we, especially with these young people that, um, I find it so disturbing when adults, you know, older people over the age of 30 are trying to tell young people that it's okay not to fit in. It's okay not to uh, dress like everybody else dresses. Be different, you know. That's mm-hmm. It's okay to say that, but the brains of those young kids don't function that way. They need right. to fit in somehow. So, it, you know, we need to change that narrative somehow to help people to still keep their standards, still keep their identity, but recognize that need to fit in and that it's okay to, you know, mm-hmm. to have that. But interesting. Well, so tell us how you, you got to be standing in front of a judge. You know, what did you do and how did you finally get into the system? And, and this was your, your saving grace, really. It really was. I mean, yes, it was a lowest point of low. Um, people that I was uh, hanging around with, we were in possession of stolen property and we were caught with stolen property. Um, and I'm trying to think back to the day I, um, (laughs) I, I actually ended up standing in front of the judge because I wouldn't tell who else was involved because still (laughs) here I am, um, not wanting, you know, to be disliked. There was a need. Yeah. I mean, there was such a lack of self-love and belief, um, my my faith, you know, you talked about faith earlier, and my faith was just that it was non-existent. It was, um, I mean, I guess I had to have some to keep going, but I didn't um, have any self-love at the point. So I was looking for it so many different places. And so I ended up taking the fall for a group of people. Um, and the I have a feeling, you know, the the judge knew what I was doing, and yeah, I was completely guilty. I w- I'm not saying that I was not, that I was innocent whatsoever, but I was just lucky that um, the judge, I think, you know, I had a public defender, you know, I didn't tell my parents about any of this. I was, it was, yeah, I think the judge, I had told my public defender that I used to be, you know, a college student, and I think... Right. The judge, it was a good day and, you know, that had some compassion and he told me, uh, you know, when I was getting sentenced, you know, I, I, you know, I didn't try to get out of anything. 
And he told me that, you know, you know, we could be charging you with all these things, but if you complete your probation um, and follow what I'm about to tell you, then you're not going to get charged with these things and your charges are, will be dropped to a misdemeanor, which will in turn be able to be expunged after, you know, seven years of good behavior. Right. So I was given two years of probation and approximately about, well, the equivalent of two years of probation, approximately 2,000 hours of community service, and uh, I would not be off probation until I got my bachelor's degree. Wow. So I have no, you know, and I'm, I, I think about I think about contacting him and asking, you know, how often he gave that sentence, you know, because it was, you know, if they would have thrown me, you know, into prison or jail or anything like that, I can't imagine that that would have turned me around at that point in time. No, no. it would have been the end. I think so. I think so. Wow. So, uh, Yeah, I would definitely love to know what, you know, where that judge is today and, and how many times he offered that opportunity really. And oh man, what an example. Boy, it's so many, so many of these young kids that are serving time for possession of marijuana and, and just little things that, you know, sure. oh my gosh, if they would have been given that opportunity would change so many lives. What a great guy. Guy, gal, what was he? What's the man? A guy, yeah. Yeah. Wow. I mean, one of the reasons I, you know, one of the philanthropies that I do now, you know, it's the reentry population, people that have had a, you know, served time, because I really feel like, you know, that could have been me. Um, that really could have been me. And um, yeah, they're, yeah. <laughs> well, talk a little bit about how your parents were, were very big into philanthropy and giving back and and service and working with charitable organizations. So it was kind of ingrained in you from the beginning. But talk a little bit more about how your desire to serve others has helped you to heal. Yeah, you're completely correct. Um, you know, my mother helped, you know, was one of the founding members of a nonprofit in our town and I began volunteering very young without even knowing it, you know, stuffing envelopes, that type of thing. And we were at a church that was very involved in service and um, doing things for the community, um, food pantries, that type of stuff. And it was pretty, it was actually um, right before I had my first major depressive episode, I spent a summer uh, volunteering at a camp for kids with cancer. And that was an experience that really gave me a few tools that got me through some of those depressive episodes and just being around the kids and learning about resilience. Um, I was able to draw from that experience a lot of time in my struggles. So, um, you know, any chance I got, I was doing volunteer work, and it probably started off just because that was something that our family did, and it was, it felt good. Uh, but you know, after 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 coming out of that time in my life, that was so um, antisocial, for lack of a better term. I just 
I just sort of dove in a hundred percent. So I did eventually finish college and I, um, the first job that I got out of college was a year long, the domestic peace corps it's called the Miracor Vista. And it's, so it's a year long, they call it a volunteer job. It's basically you're working 40 hours a week and you're making enough money. You're making an educational stipend and enough money to qualify for um, welfare. Basically they want you to live on the same, the poverty level of the people that you are, um, Serving, and so I was. Oh. I was placed at a family resource center uh, for, you know, helping with parent education classes, classes for kids after school, um, self sufficiency things. So that was, you know, it was that was an amazing experience. And from there, I ended up, you know, with the Girl Scouting, working with marginalized youth, you know, girls that were quote-unquote at risk, and it just, I found in the nonprofit world and through volunteering, it gave me skills, and I was able to learn things in a much shorter amount of time than if I had worked my way up the um, nonprofit ladder or corporate ladder, you know, I gained these skills from having mentors in these organizations, so it was Selfish and selfless, I guess. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I, that's so interesting that they they one of the requirements is that you live at the same level as the people that you were serving, so that you could really understand um, yeah. what they were going through. That's so important and so interesting. Wow! And so that's what you did right after, um, and and by doing that, by serving, that kind of it was a form of networking, and it kind of put you. In, you know, you got to know you're rubbing shoulders with other people. And so how did that lead to a more financially stable occupation? Well, I, like you said, yeah, it was, it was networking. I was getting letters of references, you know, from the superintendent of the schools, from people that it would take, taken, you know, years to have right. those experiences. And I was, you know, even though my parents were well connected, I was, you know, a stubborn kid. I didn't want their connections. I was really bound and determined to do it on my own. Um, So after, gosh, probably like four or five years of, four or five years of nonprofit work, I I kind of came to the conclusion that I better go back to school and get a graduate degree, Mm -hmm. just especially living in the town that we lived in. Um, So I ended up ended up going back to school, and I loved graduate school. It was a completely different, um, completely different experience than undergrad because I could be very focused and, um, you know, you didn't have to be social in graduate school. Everybody was in the library obsessing over their books and their research and stuff like that. So that's amazing. So you went back and you got your master's degree and specifically in nonprofit management. And, um, mm-hmm. and, and so things were really looking up and, and you got married and you had a couple of children and, mm-hmm. and everything is just on a roll for success and happiness and happily ever after and dun, dun, dun. And then <laughs> what happened? Dun, dun, dun. Um, you know, I think. Let's see, I was, 
Oh, I'll never forget the day. I, um, I was pregnant with my second son, and Geronimo, who was my eldest, was, you know, he was a kiddo that played well by himself and, you know, kept himself really entertained, so I felt very lucky. And he was in the backyard at that point, and I was sitting on my computer doing a little work, and I looked out there, and I noticed that he was he was jumping up and down, and he was flapping his arms, and he was you know, making these sounds, and he didn't talk either at that point. You know, he had a mm-hmm. few words, but he had never babbled or anything. And this is my first kid, so right. developmental milestones, things really weren't, you know, flagging in my head. And um, I just for some reason, you know, I kept calling his name, and he wouldn't even turn and look at me. And so mm-hmm. I turned around to my computer, and I typed in, in quotes, um, son won't respond to his name and then flapping hands and jumping up and down. And, mm-hmm. you know, within 0.2 seconds, there were 800,000 hits and all of them just said autism, autism, autism oh spectrum disorder, autism spectrum. And I remember just not being able to breathe, um, just you know, fear that that's all it, you know, it was, mm-hmm. it was fear. And I made the mistake of being on the computer and that, you know, I know you understand this when you in our society to anything associated with disabilities, you know, is just fear-based. It's, mm-hmm. you know, this is, you know, it's this horrible death sentence. It's this, you know, someone's stolen your child. This is, you know, just the worst things possible that you, um, could feel as a parent, and um, so that started, um, and it took some time, but we got a diagnosis and started working. Um, I ended up, you know, getting on the floor with him for 20 to 40 hours a week and, you know, shuttling from speech therapy to occupational therapy to music therapy to, you know, everything, just diving in, right. and I had my other son, and um, pretty soon after, oh, you know, things took a toll and a not strong relationship ended up in divorce. So um, I ended up having some really big health challenges at the same time. So I wasn't able to work um, situational poverty uh yeah, it was basic. You know, I was in crisis again. And, right, right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> did you, at that time, did you, um, the fact that you had already lived through everything that you had already gone through, were there times when you were like uh, looking back and thinking, oh, heck, I, I'm, where's the, you know, where's the whiskey? Where's the pot? I'm just going to do this again. I can escape. You know, but then you were able to go, oh yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not doing that. Um, but, and then search for help in another way or, or what were, what were, what, how were you thinking at that time? This time, um, this time I knew I couldn't run away. I knew I couldn't drop out. I knew mm-hmm. I couldn't do anything. And I think all the strengths that I gained from, um, the volunteer experience, but more importantly, mm-hmm. the strength that I gained from 
the people within, I, when I was living that criminal lifestyle, I was surrounded by a lot of people that really came from very, very dark places, but they were yet still alive and yeah. hopeful. And they had, you know, so I really found strength. Um, and I began asking my parents about their history and our, you know, our ancestors' history. So I knew that at this point, the only thing that I could actually do other than die was to change how I thought about things. Um, and that's a really simple thing. And uh, I don't want to poo-poo anyone, you know, that like there's no way I can do that. It just it worked for me. And I was at a point where I was able to just shift my, my, um, my view of things. And I, I said, I'm not going to look at uh, disability as um, something that's, you know, wrong in my life. I was like, I, I'm i going to change the public perception. Of, I'm going to change other parents' perception of what disability means. You know, disability is a normal part of being human. There's always been disabilities. Um, there's all, you know, animals have disabilities. It's just um, a difference. And, you know, there's no reason that our family can't have a healthy and productive life that's, you know, full of joy and that my child can't have joy. And so I just, I accepted where I was. And I think that's the hugest part is, you know, being okay with maybe not knowing how things are going to be and being okay with things just being really cruddy, you know, and having that state, you know, and I think the state thing really, um, helped at that point. I was able to grab onto space and I hadn't been able to do that before. Interesting. And I think that was what touched me the most about your statement was because there are so many um, wonderful, I'm not going to be critical, but there's wonderful statements, you know, all the memes that are out there that are, uh, you know, on Facebook, uh, you know, have a happy day or uh, change your attitude. It's all about attitude. And, you know, and you hear the stories of the prisoners of war who say they took everything away from me except they couldn't take my attitude, you know, and you hear those and you see them. But so often it's so easy to slip into, yeah, but you don't know what I'm going through, you know, and that gives us that permission to have the self-pity and to wallow and to just like I always say, people are tempted to find their strength in their sorrow rather than in the solution to their sorrow. And so when you mentioned that there was nothing that you could change about your environment except for your attitude and you chose gratitude it was, it sounds so dang simplistic, but it's the truth. And it, like you say, it worked. And, and it was, that's what I think touched me the most was you don't have a Cinderella story. You know, you don't have that. And then we, I changed my attitude and we all lived happily ever after. You still have a son <laughs> that has autism. You know, you're still mm-hmm. a working mom. Um, there's still things that are going on and you're still young. There's, there's a huge future ahead of you, you know? So that's what touched me the most was, and, and you also, what I loved was you, you had the help of a life coach and then you chose to then turn around and become a life coach to help others. Everything that you've done, you've used that experience and then you've used it to help others 
through what you learned. And I think that's what's most important. So talk a little bit about how that life coach helped you and then now how you're helping others. So in the midst of everything, when I knew that I had to change how I was thinking, I knew that I needed to do something proactive and I needed to uh, not only talk the talk, but I needed to walk the walk. And I knew that I, the stuff that I had gone through, uh, I knew that I wasn't going to be able to help anyone or um, be the kind of mom my kids needed if I didn't do some healing myself. So many of us are, we're, you know, well, my parents' generation, well, you're wounded, but you just have to get up and get over it, you know, and so you sweep it on the rug and you keep going, but you're still wounded and you're still, um, you have these um, parts of yourself that are not whole or healthy and I was determined that even if I wasn't 100%, my kids would see me being actively in the process of healing myself and Mm -hmm. always having that open dialogue with them about these types of things. So I did. I, um, I started seeing a life coach because I knew, I knew um, that there was, I knew that I wanted to be somewhere else than I was right then. And I knew that just being a traditional counselor at that point wasn't going to um, get me to that place. And what I like about coaching is that it's really about sort of navigating the gaps between where you are and then where you want to be. And with my background in nonprofit management and writing, I'd always help organizations write strategic plans. and I really like the thought of doing that, but for individuals. So while I was getting help from a life coach, her approach wasn't as structured as I was, the wheels in my head were starting to spin. I, um, you know, as I started getting more of a following on Facebook and telling a little bit more about my story and being more social and I was, you know, serving in some, um, local county commissions at this point, um, people started actually asking me when they found out that I was seeing a life coach, they were asking, they're like, well, you would be great doing that. I would totally come see you, you know, and I told them about my ideas about, you know, writing a strategic plan for your life. And they're, you know, like, take me, pick me, pick me. And so I was something that just sort of evolved, you know, my undergrad degree was in behavioral sciences. So I was interested in that to begin with. But um, yeah, and I ended up, you know, getting certified, which was a not a really difficult uh, process. But, you know, um, in addition to all the work that I had done before, it just sort of all fell into place. Well, and I think that's the most amazing thing. And I think, you know, what you've pointed out is, um that everyone everyone will work better w- with a certain style of person that works best for them. Everyone has to find the person that works best for them. But I like what how you talk about it's not you know it's not so much a life coach as a transformational coach 
and that you help people to really define their goals. And I think that's so important because a lot of us know we need something or we know that we want to accomplish something, but we don't have that skill of being able to really narrow that down and define what it is we need to do. And then also to formulate a plan. I know people like me who who are a little hyperactive, we have lots of things going on, but to really have to sit down and formulate a plan is the hard part. And so, you know, we all need somebody like you that's a little bit more structured that can help us out. So tell everyone in our last, we just have a minute here or so, tell everyone how they can find you, uh, what's the best way of contacting you, if, they, if they're interested in, in, you know, getting together with you, what would be the best way? Great. Well, thanks. I, I have a website, and it's really simple. It's my name, vanessatruitt.com, and that's V-A-N-E-S-S-A-T-R-U-E-T-T.com, um, and there's a contact, uh, a button for contact where you can send me a message. I also um, have a Gmail, and that's vanessatruitt at gmail.com. Those are really good and fast ways to get in contact with me. Okay, perfect. That's very good. Well, thank you so much, Vanessa, for sharing your story. As again, I mentioned, you know, you're, I just feel like you're so inspirational and I love that you took your life experiences and use, you're using those experiences to help others. I love the way you're doing it. And, you know, now that I've gotten, you know, my husband and I have formed a nonprofit and, and it's, it's a way to give back, but it's not easy. And you need to have experts that know how to work nonprofits. And, and I, I just loved your way of, of, of working. I love your business model. So anyway, I appreciate you, you sharing your story. And, um, and please, anyone that has, that has been, contemplating possibly looking into a life coach I, I highly recommend you at least contact Vanessa and see if she has the personality and the style that would work well for you so thank you so much have a great week in spite of this horrible weather out there thank you so much okay bye-bye oh thank you all for joining me today it was a, I, I hope that you enjoyed Vanessa's comments as much as I did when I first heard her and I think it's so important to remember that you know, it's so simple. People hate to hear it, but it is all about attitude, doggone it. And it's something as simple as just making that decision that you're going to have a good day in spite of whatever is going on. And it totally goes back to my, you know, the name of this program, Heaven Sent and Bent. And, you know, some of the blessings that are sent to us don't always look like blessings. And sometimes they come across as struggles. But looking forward to how, you know, the, how, what we're going through, how is this going to help me? How is this going to help others can change your attitude in just a, a few seconds and, and then being determined. The bent part can be used in two different ways. It can either be like, wow, that I thought that was going to be a good thing, but it seems to be a little off. Or you could take it and use it as I am determined and to to fix whatever's going on. And that will just give you the endorphins that you need to get through your day. So anyway, I hope you've enjoyed it. We'll talk again next week. Have a great Heaven Sent Bent week. Bye-bye. <laughs> 